John Sheehan from Twilio. Thanks for listening to our favorite podcast, This Developer's Life. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Twilio is the easiest way to send and receive phone calls and text messages from your applications. Get started for free at TWILIO.com. Use promo code TDL12 for a special This Developer's Life listener's bonus. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. This is Glenn Cooper from Sublime SVN, and we're super excited to help sponsor This Developer's Life. We love the show and are proud to be a part of the community. Check us out at sublimesvn.com. In our last episode, Scott and Sarah and I talked to some developers about the worst projects that they've ever been involved in. They all seem to share a common theme. He decides one day in mid-January that um, he is unhappy with C-sharp because he can't follow it and he doesn't understand the code I'm writing. Start over. No. No. Yes. No. In access. <laughs> he came in one time with, uh, you know, I, I don't know this for certain, but sure looked like hookers on, on either arm. And he sort of flaunted them, walked up and down the aisles and flaunted them and, you know, introduced us to him, you know, and it was like Bambi and Bimbo or something. I can't remember their names. And then somehow I got pulled into this. Uh, actually, you told me you cashed in your 401k to do this. And now I can see, see, now I can see you ending up in a story like this. You've hired someone to do tech pub with you. You running around the office with hookers and you're doing coke off the desk presumably on a Macintosh. You know, when you risk when you risk that much, you, Rob, are now the unstable weird manager guy. The unstable weird manager guy. How does that happen to a person? Are you born that way? Or do you slowly whack out over time? Being an entrepreneur, risking it all, isn't easy. It does different things to different people. Today we're going to take a look at those things, take a look at the forces involved when you make risky decisions. Episode 12 of This Developer's Life, Drive. It was, it was New Year's Eve and I had gone out with my friends. We actually had a decent time and it was like two in the morning and I knew I was going to have to deal with this, so um, I, I had this couch all scoped out that was in the basement, and I know that the I had the key and the way to get in and all that kind of stuff because we were already out of our office, and um, so I found my way into where all the storage was and slept on the couch. I think I slept there like two nights. wouldn't you want to work at GitHub if we offer you a job? Who knows, five years from now, we're making a ton of money in revenue every year. Why can't we be one of the only companies that has ever IPO'd without taking an investment? I don't, I don't think I would have been able to take the product and turn it into a business without Nikki. She, that's what she really was able to, you know, make work. Yeah, it, it, it would never work. I'm, I'm convinced of that. <laughs> I'm not saying that just because she's sitting next yeah, to me. <laughs> yeah. I would theorize that it, it's actually simpler in a lot of ways um, 
if the business partners are married. Right now, that that was three interesting segments, but that first segment there, uh, he's sleeping in his garage. That uh, let's just say that stands out a little bit. That's my friend Dave Nielsen, serial entrepreneur with about five different projects going all at once. Uh, did you ever see that movie Rushmore? Of course, of course. This is the movie that actually made Jason Schwartzman's career. Mm-hmm. Who you know we've seen in everything. He's in iPad New Yorker advertisements, and he's on TV all the time. Yep. And in the movie, his character, he's this high school kid. But except he wants to be involved in everything. Yep. He's got awful grades, but he's in every club in school, yep. and backgammon club and French club. And he even starts a little group called the Max Fisher Players. <laughs> exactly. Well, every time, it's funny, every time I try and describe Dave uh, to a friend that hasn't met him, Max pops right in my head. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret, I don't know. Uh... I think you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. All right. Well, I, I hear that. I think this is going to be a good one. I need to hear how this guy ends up sleeping in the storage space of his office. Yeah, I never get tired of hearing this. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. That was definitely rock bottom, at least so far. And I really hope I never go anywhere near that again. Um, I had it was, it was a series of ridiculous events. I, my girlfriend and I at the time, we were having a little bit of trouble, but we wanted to make it work. And so I moved out of my apartment and into her apartment uh, across town. And at the same time, like 9-11 had just happened and uh, the business was struggling. It was just a tough time. And my, the fact that my, my girlfriend and I moved in together is probably what broke us up and kind of made us realize that this just wasn't going to work. And I'd already rented out my apartment, so I was I had no place to go. And at the same time, the business was tanking. And so since I didn't have much money, I just took the opportunity to live out of the office, which was a loft. And I lived there for like three months. And then I had to get rid of that place because the rent was too high. So I moved into another little office space that was like two tiny rooms and <laughs> I remember there was in the in the transition there was a period where I literally had no place to live. I had the one place had closed, the other one wasn't available for a few days, so I was literally uh, hiding out in the basement of the office building that we had been renting. It was embarrassing, quite frankly, just to myself. I thought I am. It was it was New Year's Eve because that was when the lease was up at the end of December, and I had gone out with my friends. We actually had a decent time, and it was like two in the morning and. I knew I was going to have to deal with this, so um, I I had this couch all scoped out that was in the basement, and I know that the I had the key and the way to get in and all that kind of stuff because we were already out of our office. So I found my way into where all the storage was and slept on the couch. I think I slept there like two nights. It was kind of a dungeony like place, and it just felt, ah, man, I felt homeless. I felt like... Well, you were homeless. I know. Technically, I was homeless for a couple of days. Yeah. (music) 
You know, it's really funny about this too, is I did have a car, so I guess I could have slept in my car, but the uh, the funny, funniest thing is that before I moved into the new office, like a couple days later, or I should say while I was moving to the new office, my car was stolen. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I remember I didn't have a place to stay. My car was stolen and it, it was just, I, one of my friends said, Dave, you know, it, it cannot get worse than this. This is rock bottom. That was a, a, definitely a, it etched, it etched a, a sort of like a mark, a low mark in my life and in my career that, that I never wanted to go back to. So the funny thing is I've known Dave probably longer than most any friend that I have. We grew up two blocks from each other in Los Angeles, uh, met while we were in grade school. And, uh, you know, the funny thing, I ran against the guy uh, uh, for student body vice president, believe it or not. I am I am disturbed that you still remember this. You are still <laughs> hanging on to high school yep. so many years later. But more importantly, who won the election? Well, me, of course. Why would you ask? <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I should have known better than to ask. Uh, but still, more importantly, Dave, how is Dave doing now? He's doing really well. I'm the co-founder of cloudcamp.org, which is a series of events that we put on around the world to help educate both developers, techies, and uh, non-techies about cloud computing. And I also have a consulting company called Platform D, where I help companies market their technologies to other technology people like web developers. And I get my background in this area from being a developer myself through the 90s, um, running a web services user group for 10 years now, and um, having a job at PayPal where I ran their, or was their first technical evangelist and eventually ran the PayPal developer network. So Dave is one of the most tenacious uh, people I've ever known, if it's not clear by now. Um, it's actually kind of ridiculous. Uh, again, coming back to uh, to Max, as you said, he doesn't care. Max never cared about his grades. He was purely focused on the school as a social system. And Dave is somewhat the exact same way. Um, he's the kind of friend you have. Uh, well, he's one of those guys you can tell stories about. What's Dave doing? What's Dave going to do? Uh, it's he's a laugh riot. And you know, so so for example, he goes to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo uh, in Northern California, and he wanted to join a fraternity. Uh, they didn't have a fraternity that he liked. So guess what the guy does? Okay, so he couldn't find a fraternity he liked. He made up his own fraternity. <laughs> exactly right. He goes and he founds Pi Kappa Alpha, the Pikes. It's a pretty well-known fraternity. Uh, yeah, and the guy founds a fraternity. You know, when he goes back to San Luis Obispo, he's treated like a king at the frat house. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. Okay, so he's a force. He's a force of nature, does what he wants, uh, you know, and presumably he does this without any fear. Seems like the perfect employee. <laughs> I assume he has uh, the history of working for himself. You got that right. All right, all right, all right. 
I thoroughly enjoy working for myself and the freedom and the creativity. But if if the right type of project or company came along that just seemed really cool, um, you know, or fit in with what I wanted to accomplish in life, I certainly have no uh, problem with that. It's not the fact that I want to work for myself that drives me. It's that I want to do something that I enjoy and that I'm passionate about. And unless a company comes along that has a job and a product and a service that I feel passionate about, then uh, I probably won't take it. You know, if there was some technology that I felt very confident in, so something around cloud computing or web services, that I thought was an incredible opportunity to make a big difference in the developer community, which is the community I care a lot about, um, or you know maybe just the general public, um, I'd consider it. You know, it'd have to be something pretty um, innovative and game-changing. Um, I would really, I, I can't imagine myself working for a company that's just doing the same thing it's done for 10 years or more. That, that just, I can't imagine that. It doesn't keep my attention. I think I'd be bad at it. That's probably the number one thing is I don't want to be bad at what I do. And if I'm not inspired by the work, I probably will not do it well. A company like Microsoft has never really, even Google today, I mean, I live in Mountain View. I've been invited to interview for jobs at Google. And at this point, it just seems like such a big company. I, I just feel like it'd be lost and... I don't, I don't know if I'd have much of an impact unless I found the exact right position there. Um, and even then, it just it doesn't feel like it'd be making much of a change or a difference. So, um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a nine to fiver. Now, once I have kids, maybe that'll change a little bit. I don't know. But, but up until now, my priorities have always been about trying to find something that was... Uh, unique or valuable and needed needed just needed to be out there and people needed it to learn about it it really depends because right now i'm i'm doing quite well at what i'm doing and i think it's uh you know they'd have to have a pretty powerful um, incentive for me to leave that so but i think it's really important i once learned that you need to be able to walk away from anything um otherwise you just don't know if you're getting a good deal and I think you know that that mostly applies to like when you're buying a car or you know any port any important purchase decision you make you, if you cannot walk away from it the seller will smell blood and just take you for all you're worth and I, I think it's the same way with a job or you know anything that's that's not family or you know life uh, critical you need to be able to walk away and and I I, I feel that about even what I'm doing right now with CloudCamp. I really enjoy doing it, and it's it's a lot of fun, and I think I'm helping a lot of people learn about this important technology and game or life-changing technology in some cases. But um, it's, it's not the only thing I would enjoy doing. Would I rather be more successful but have very little control over my destiny? and therefore uh, not feel that it was my own? Or would I rather be have a, more risk and therefore have a greater chance of not being as successful, but 
having made that path for myself. And the latter is certainly much more appealing to me um, as long as I can put bread on the table and um, you know, not stress myself out too much. Okay, now, this is confusing me. This guy cannot possibly be married. I mean, how would this work out in a relationship? Well, it takes a wife who's patient, who's understanding, who's willing to go along with the ride to watch you fulfill your passions and so on. But still, it's a good question. I mean, I asked Dave directly, how do you get away with this? Yeah, well, good question. I ask myself that sometimes. In fact, my wife asked me that as well because <laughs> uh, um, she tells her friends about our uh, check, uh, checking account ups and downs, and, and, and they really get nervous <laughs> because it certainly goes, uh, goes pretty crazy, crazily close to uh, you know, not being able to make payments, which fortunately to this day I've always made our mortgage payment, but I've missed some other things, that's for sure. Okay. Well, this is a little beyond uh, what I think I would yeah. put up with. I, but, uh, I totally agree. I mean, there's no way I could do that either. Well, really? Don't make me go to the archives. Uh, you know, you said yourself, you like the startup scene. You left the uh, Microsoft, and what did you do? You you started up very risky. And I remember telling you that was stupid. Uh, actually, you told me you cashed in your four hundred one k to do this. Is that true? <laughs> Good one. Good one. Well, bazinga. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. But I don't think I'm going to end up homeless. I mean, I don't think I'd go that far. Uh, you know, and in fairness, Dave wouldn't either. I I knew that things would turn around for me. I knew it. It was. I really didn't fear that this was a permanent situation, but it certainly helped me understand what what people might go through who have no opportunity or way out. And uh, <laughs> you know, you find you get creative, and unfortunately, some of those creative options start becoming normal. And I think that's when people start spiraling down is is they start feeling that it's normal to live in these unusual street-like situations and if you know thankfully i never got comfortable with it but if you if you did i I can imagine somebody saying hey this isn't so bad i can do this but i can i couldn't do it one of the smartest things i ever learned from anyone else was one of them was from my dad who was also an entrepreneur and but he didn't know when to say stop and so he always worked for himself and i think he had some difficult times that he perhaps didn't really need to uh, go through. And he died young of cancer. I don't know if that led to it or not, but you know, maybe it did. I think he led us life that was more stressful than it needed to be. And so that's part of the reason why I ended up taking a job at PayPal was that I was going through a stressful time and it was a good opportunity to, to relieve some of that stress. And it turned out to be a great move to meet new people and then it's a good time for the, in the company as well. So, you know, I benefited from that. I think that was a good lesson. And another lesson I learned was, especially when you're young, get paid to learn. There's a lot of opportunities when you're young where you have a fresh outlook, you have kind of a clean slate, and there are people who are willing to invest in you to get you to learn whatever it is that they need you to do. And they will pay you to work while you learn.
Many thanks to my good friend Dave Nielsen for sharing the ups and downs of his professional career. And if you want to know more about what he's doing, go check him out, cloudcamp.org. We're putting you on what we call sudden death academic probation. Could I see some documentation on that, please? Too many extracurricular activities, Max. Not enough studying. 54, 42, 41. Dr. Guggenheim, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but the fact is, no matter how hard I try, I still might flunk another class. If that means I have to stay on for a postgraduate year, then so be it. But if we don't offer a postgraduate year. Well, we don't offer it yet. Working only for yourself, chasing your dreams, risking. Well, you know, sometimes it means you don't pay your bills when you should. Or maybe you end up sleeping on a couch underneath a building. Or does it? Sometimes people actually have it a bit easier. Cool, you bet. Yeah. Speaking of, Scott, who is this voice that we're listening to now? Okay, now this is a guy who gets things done. This is Tom Preston Werner, who's doing the same kind of thing as Dave, except his results are a little more... (laughs) Um, concrete, explicit, and world-changing. Tom Preston Warner, yeah, he's the Gravatar guy. He's uh, the one that invented Gravatar. He uh, he's also done Jekyll, the um, static blogging system. He's also got the God Gem, and uh, he did something else too, didn't he? Oh uh, yeah, a little something called GitHub. <laughs> GitHub, yeah. This is a guy who basically blew up the hosted project space, totally made something very remarkable. How it's happened is pretty remarkable as well. Yeah, the way that GitHub really started for me was I was at home and I I had sold Gravatar a few months earlier, and that was my side project. That's what took up all my time when I wasn't at work. And so I had kind of an empty void and I was searching for a new side project, something to work on. And Git had become, we had been talking about it in the Ruby community circles here up here in San Francisco at some of our meetings. And we were using it at work. My friend Dave Farum had introduced me to it. And I thought it was interesting, but we were using Subversion and I I didn't realize how awesome it was at first. But after using it for a little while, it became clear that just the branching stuff, just the branching alone changes everything. And I had been using it and, and, and trying to get a, a grasp on what, what it could be and what it was and, and what the failings were. And I wanted to start using it with more people because that was supposed to be what it was really good at. It was supposed to be a distributed version control system that let you work on projects with other people in a better fashion and it wasn't as crappy as Subversion. And it was obviously better than Subversion, but the sharing part was really difficult. At at PowerSet, we had sort of started using it illicitly because it wasn't, all our stuff was supposed to be in Subversion, but we were like, I'm gonna use Git for this project. And 
all of our repositories were on servers and we all had direct server access to them and that's how we shared. There was no interface. We didn't even really use the interfaces that get shipped with at the time, which were pretty crappy and still are not that great. And so there, there felt like you should be able to share, but you can't very well. And we talked about this at the Ruby meetups that we had and we kicked some ideas around and none of them ever felt right. And at one point I was at home and I was, I was thinking about this and I said, well, I'm a web programmer and I know a lot of web programmers. And what if I just, what if I just want a little site that I can make and play around with that would be an interface for, uh, for Git repositories. And that could be a place that you could upload them and then share them with other people. So a moment that I had that was really special was I sat down and I started writing the Ruby bindings to Git called Grit, which is what we still use today. And I just started writing them. And I think the first thing I implemented was the log command. I just wanted to be able to, with Ruby, say grit.new and give it a file location, a, a directory path of a Git repository, have that object and then say that repository.log and have it output an array of commits. That was the first thing that I implemented. And I didn't know anything about how the storage worked or how anything. I didn't know how Git worked at all underneath when I started doing this. And I thought, well, I'll probably learn something along the way. So I started in a very naive fashion by just figuring out a nice way to get the log output as much detail as I could and then just parsing it as a big string. And I did that and I shoved those strings into a commit object and I parsed them out and I returned the array. And, and the first time that I went into IRB and I ran the, that set of commands to be able to do that and it, and it spat out a list of commits from a repository that, that had never been done in Ruby before. And, and that, was, that was the point where I was like, this could actually happen. I, I can actually do this. This is feasible. And a few days later, we were at a Ruby meetup, and afterwards we went to a bar that's not too far from here in Soma called Zeke's. And and I was I was taking a break from the the talk in back. We were all kind of clustered around a couple tables in back, and I went up to get a beer and sat down at a table and was playing with my iPhone or something. And Chris Wanstroth walks in. He had come a little late or something. I don't think he was at the actual meetup. He walks in and I said, I said, hey, Chris, come, come over here. Come over here and check this out. Check out, check this out. I had my computer with me, obviously. I opened it up and I went into the IRB thing and I, and I showed him. I just, I was like, grit.new, filepath.commits, bam, there it is. And I said, I'm starting to write these Ruby to Git bindings. I had been working on Chris previously with some code through Git. And so he understood that it was terrible to share. I said, I want to do a site that lets you share Git repositories easier. And he looked at me and he said, I'm in. Because he, he, he knew it too. He saw it and he knew it. And he, he had thoughts about sharing Git repositories of his own that were somewhat similar and, and somewhat dissimilar. But I think it was just that the, the reality of seeing that in Ruby code was was powerful for both of us and he was a hardcore rails guy and i didn't really want to do rails anymore i wanted to do more back-end stuff and so i saw him and i was like chris would be perfect for this 
Well, people who use Git really love it. And people who use GitHub, well, that just makes using Git all the more fun. GitHub is amazing. Just about everyone has heard of it. Just about everybody has used it. The idea for GitHub just seems obvious. And it fell right in Tom's lap. Even to this day, there is nothing like GitHub. So we asked Tom, are you amazed that there's just nothing like GitHub even today? That your idea is just still going? I'm, I'm kind of bewildered every day that we don't have more competent competition. It's, it's, a, it's a huge market. And I don't know, there's something about code hosting that the traditional knowledge is that you don't make money building developer tools. That's the traditional knowledge. And maybe to big corporations, that's true. Maybe the kind of money that, that they would want to make from that is irrelevant in terms of their overall. So for big companies like Microsoft, maybe they don't even care. It's, it's irrelevant. That kind of money would be irrelevant to them, but it's certainly relevant to me. And I think that they might be mistaken in that there's more and more developers created every day. And the better the tools are, the more developers there will be. And that's clearly a direction that languages are going, that tools are going, just having Git and GitHub around so that people can share code and open source can be made faster and faster and easier and getting people involved in, in, without having to jump through a bunch of hoops. All of this stuff means that more developers are going to be created than there would otherwise. So by building good tools, you're creating an even bigger market. And I don't know specifically why there was no big competitor to us in the early days. And there are some now, but there's nobody that does the combined private and public hosting and has a community like ours. We have more than 560,000 users now. That's a pretty significant portion of the overall developer community. This is a guy who just can't get it wrong. I mean, you know when someone does something right once, they're, they're amazing, right? Some people spend their whole lives trying to get something right. Here's a guy who's getting it right over and over and over. I mean, the universe itself is conspiring for Tom's success. Yeah, you know, it's amazing for people who start their own uh, companies or just to have any idea, like Dave, mover and shaker guy, you know, out there trying to make stuff happen. I mean, to have something literally fall in your lap it's just maddening. You know, as an entrepreneur, it makes you want to smack yourself when you see someone else just back their way into it. But then again, Tom did give up something that was pretty compelling. At just about the exact same time that Tom and Chris were throwing together the code for what would become GitHub, turns out that the company that Tom worked for called PowerSet, a little startup in the Bay Area, well, it was bought by Microsoft. And Tom received a very nice package deal coming to join Microsoft that, well, it involved a lot of money. You're an entrepreneur. What do you do? Chase your dream? Work for yourself? Or take the money and run? Uh, I very distinctly remember that day. I was at the PowerSet office, and it was the last day that we could decide on our Microsoft offers. So I was at PowerSet at the time. 
they had just been acquired by Microsoft and they gave everyone in the company offer letters which had varying levels of retention bonuses attached to them. And I had let it sit on my desk until I think we had something like three days to decide. We didn't have very long. And so I, I would look at it and I read over the terms and, you know, it's one of these thick 20 page things with all of the, all of the various terms and conditions of employment and the, the compensation and whatnot. And I wrote a, a blog post about it afterwards. The amount was, was $300,000 retention bonus plus a, a pretty generous salary, a raise from what I had been making. And so I, I thought about it for a long time. And yeah, my wife was in Costa Rica at the time and I had been talking to her about it the last couple of days. And it would have been an obvious choice to say yes, except that I was doing GitHub on the side. And we had even started making some money from GitHub at that point. So it wasn't as brutal of a decision. I wasn't facing as difficult of a decision as I could have been if GitHub had not been making money and not had really good indicators of success in the future. But at the same time, I mean, I didn't have money in the bank account. I had debt. Um, we had a place in San Francisco. It's very expensive to live here. And a startup is always a gamble. And so as I thought about those things, I also thought about what was it that I wanted to do with my time? And PowerSet, while it was a great company and working there was awesome and I worked with a ton of really great people, it was still a job. It was still working for someone else. And there's nothing that I love more in the world than just working on new projects, new things, things that are exciting, new technologies, things that I want to work on and things that when I work on them, I can feel pride in them and know that that's affecting my future in a very direct way. And so I'm always working on side projects. I'm always, I always have something. Right now, I'm, I'm kind of doing some stuff with elect electronics. I'm getting back into electronics, which I used to do a lot when I was a kid. So there's always something and I don't, I never know where that's going to take me, but it's always fun to, to play around and see because those, that's where you can really be free with what you're doing. When you're working a job for someone else, you always have to be very careful that you're, that you're doing the right thing by them. But when you're working on your own thing, you can do whatever the hell you want. And that was really what made the decision was, do I want to spend my time as a Microsoft employee and watch my two co-founders continue building GitHub and potentially being the kind of people in, in the position that I want to be. And I don't think I could have ever lived with myself if I had done that. And so the only decision that I could have made was to leave Microsoft or what would become Microsoft and, and just put all of my efforts into, into GitHub. And so I went into, I went to, into my boss's office and I said, this is great. This is very generous, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm quitting today. And he said, I knew you'd say that. Okay. Well, that's absurd. Yeah, I agree. But then again, you know, like Dave, the guy's focused on working for himself. People ask us all the time what our long-term plan is and what we would do if we were faced with a big acquisition. And right now, we're in a good place because we have no investors. We have no outside investors. We've never taken VC money. So we're not pressured to sell. We would not be pressured to sell in that case. All the pressure would come from 
ourselves and within the company. And honestly, the company that we've built is so damn fun to work for that I almost wouldn't even care what that price was right now. And I say that because tomorrow or a year from now, whatever number they had on the table is going to feel like pennies compared to where we're going to be in that amount of time. So my question is, as long as you have and can demonstrate upward motion and really good growth and everyone in the company is having a good time and you're hiring the best people and the sky's the limit, why are you entertaining offers at all? Because what's it going to be like in a year? What's it going to be like in two years? What's that landscape? What's that landscape going to be like? And maybe there's going to be a bubble, and maybe the ground's going to fall out from underneath you. But honestly, we were very little affected by the economic downturn. People still need to write software, and guess what? They're looking for ways to save money and work more effectively, which means they're even more interested in paying for a hosted code solution, so they don't have to run their own servers. So in a way, that was probably good for us. So we are well protected from a lot of these things. And there's always going to be more coders, and there's always going to be more code, and there's always going to be a need for better tools. So what I want to do, what I would prefer to do, is build the best team that there is so that we can get the best talent that there is, because why wouldn't you want to work at GitHub if we offer you a job? And who knows, five years from now, we're making a ton of money in revenue every year. Why can't we be one of the only companies that has ever IPO'd without taking investment? So one guy creates opportunities for others. Uh, you know, another's more like you, kind of keen on what comes his way. Dave obviously is working very hard to convince folks that his agenda is right. Uh, Tom doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to work at all, and things just work out. Uh, but the, the thing that's common between them is that they both know that they're right, and they're apparently both willing to tell you all about it. Absolutely. And there's been a, more than one time where Dave has been talking, and I you know, to a group of people and I've been cringing in a corner just thinking, oh my goodness, how can the guy just be so self-assured? He can just come right out and kind of speak his mind and 
not in an overly aggressive way, but just so self-assured. Mm, yeah, well, you know, a person who is sure of themselves can be considered self-assured and driven and, you know, visionary. But if you don't like their idea, then, then they're cocky and arrogant and a bunch of other, you know, potentially not so nice names. Uh, the point here is not what you think of them, but it's kind of how much they care about your your assessment of them. Yeah, and that's where things get pretty interesting. I mean, Dave's a pretty caring guy. As I mentioned before, he's a very good friend. But he also doesn't care one bit when, you know, you shrink in the corner as he, you know, as I said before, kind of steps into the lights and starts pounding his chest a little bit, stating his opinion really loudly. He doesn't really have that off switch, if you will. Um, that, you know, people look at him and say, oh, you're arrogant and cocky. He just really just doesn't care. He states his mind. No, of course. I mean, these guys believe so much in what they're doing that it's really impossible for them to see how anyone could disagree with them. Uh, they can't even hear you. They, their idea is that, you know, is that correct? They believe in it that much. Actually, it wasn't. Yeah, no, we only have no. one in-person meeting. Um, okay, I hear some voices in the background. I assume that's you doing that. Who, who, who is this? Uh, this is Nate and Nikki Kohari. They own AgileZen.com. It's that project management site. Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic project. Really a representative of best practices in a number of ways, both technologically and uh, from an agile perspective. Nate is a phenomenal technologist. Yeah, absolutely. And he does a lot of open source work in the Microsoft arena. Uh, he does Ninject, mm -hmm. IOC container. He's also a prolific blogger. And he did something that I consider rather remarkable. He started a business with his wife. I mean, not a lot of people do that, especially not a startup, uh, especially not a tech startup. Uh, that in itself is interesting. But what's really cool is nine months after they created it, they sold it. Now, to a lot of people who start their own business, if your idea is good enough, if your business is valuable enough for someone to want to come along and buy it, well, that's that's a big fat pat on the back. So that's why I want to pick up this story. I asked them, what was it like when you sold your company? Uh, I think there was, uh, it was surreal, I think for a while. Yeah, um, definitely. So, you know, there was, there was champagne involved and, and all that kind of thing too, as you might expect, but mostly, it, you know, there was a lot of stress of, of going through, you know, the whole due diligence process and before that, the negotiation process and, you know, before that actually like launching and running the company too, that, um, you know, for it to be. You know, we were, we were really only in, you know, business independent for how many months? Not very long. Eight? July mm -hmm. to August. Or no, mm -hmm. July to April. April. Yeah. yeah so, so. However many months it is. I yeah. can't count. But, <laughs> but I mean, it, you know, it, it happened so fast. Uh, we, we had no intention, I don't think, of, um, you know, selling the company that quickly. Uh, but you know, it, it worked out. It was it was the right decision to make, you know, at the time and everything. So, um, yeah, I think it was it was more surreal than anything else. Yeah, I think it was a, a mix of emotions, and I don't think that we really understood the magnitude of it until much much later. We didn't really understand. I think what we had done. I mean, again, I don't. That sounds like it's what we've done is just incredible, which honestly it's not. But. Um, I think we underestimated it for a long time. And then even just rally being interested in, in buying the company was, you know, justification for what we'd done. And, but then we had, you know, we had 
a lot of encouragement along the way too from you know our customers and, and everything like that i mean you know we had we had kind of set up some goals in mind you know for what we wanted to achieve and and we beat all of them i mean it you know and i mean maybe our goals were conservative but, but you know we thought too small but it, you know we we just continued to to do well and so um i think that was surprising we launched at like you know, 10 or 11 in the morning and we woke up the next day and he goes you won't believe how many people signed up and i was like oh i don't he's like guess and i was like oh i don't know you know a couple hundred or whatever he's like a thousand people and i was like i don't even know a thousand people like that seems like a really ridiculous number to me so i was like okay maybe we underestimated ourselves maybe people are more interested than we thought and then it kind of went through a series of things from there. And I was like, oh, we just made a sale. Oh, we just made a sale for a year. Like, oh, that's interesting. People have confidence that we'll be here a year from now. That's actually yeah. pretty good. And then, you know, later on we had conversations with uh, other people who worked at places that were not Rally, let's just say that. And they were like, yeah, you know, we should acquire you guys for, a lot of money and we're like oh yeah it's funny we had a good laugh about it and not a couple weeks later did rally come to us and, and talk about partnerships or acquisition and we're like okay <laughs> i think even before that too i mean we we applied for a, a grant too in northeast ohio and you know that was a whole process of you know going in and pitching to them and you know explaining what the business was and everything like that i mean essentially what you do you know for investment of any kind um all this is like non-recourse you know they would take a slice of the company and uh we had we had pitched once and actually gotten rejected and then we went back and pitched again after we launched and it was it was really interesting the difference to be able to talk about um you know the adoption rate and that kind of thing and i, I do remember um when they called to uh, you know, tell us that we had been awarded the grant, which was you know twenty five thousand dollars, which you know for a bootstrap company is like that was amazing. It basically doubled our runway, you know, that we had. Um, Nikki was actually at school, um, you know, with her PhD classes, and uh, they called, and you know, I answered, and then Nikki came home, and you know, <laughs> yeah, I, what did I say to you? I don't remember, but I was like, no way. Yeah. No, no way. I will say though that when we pitched that that second time, I I really felt like when we left, I was like, we nailed that. Like that may have been the best thing that ever that I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a lot of um, there, I think there was a lot of like um, escalating moments of yeah. of success, and um, you know, part of me does still wonder, you know, had we continued to you know stay independent would we continue having those escalating moments of success um not that i regret the decision to sell the company or anything but um it was uh you know we we had just kept climbing and climbing and climbing um, while we were independent um you know we i still kind of wonder where it would have went you know sometimes yeah A lot of people ask us, you know, if it was, if it's strange to be, you know, a married couple and start a business and, you know, now work together at the same company and everything like that. 
you know, I think at this point now it's, it would be weird if we didn't. Uh, I yeah. think, but I don't know if it's for everybody. I think we we're that way about most things. I mean, you know, we kind of just have a rule that, you know, nothing is off limits in terms in terms of you know conversation, and it's important to talk about everything, you know freely because you can't do that if you if you start walking on eggshells about stuff and you worry too much about hurting the other person's feelings about you know the truth um you get into trouble you know i think i actually think we and we talked about this since <laughs> we we thought it was gonna be harder than it was yeah um, i thought being married was gonna be harder than it was actually yeah and so too. the whole thing the whole thing <laughs> has exceeded my expectations right yeah, and we, I mean, we do fun stuff together. We absolutely grab a bottle of wine and just hang out and talk about something other than work. <laughs> sure. And, you know, we play games or whatever. We Some, mm -hmm. some video games, now we play them together. So that's, True. I've learned to like some of those things and Nate's learned to go to the mall with me on occasion. Right. So yep. <laughs> it, it, it's all working out. She's a great uh, second player in like Super Mario Galaxy and, True. and stuff like I, that. I do. I play, I play Team Fortress 2 yeah. and I always play as the medic because I'm collaborative like that. That's right. And then I, I actually like watching people play video games. I know that sounds really crazy, but I've always been like that. So I'm not very good at anything, but if there's something where like I'm the second player and I don't have to do a lot, I'm very much into that. <laughs> you just instantly made a bunch of geeks jealous. <laughs> Certainly the part about them selling their business while keeping a happy marriage is interesting, but uh, she plays video games with them too. Now, now, yeah, they're, they're, like, now they're just showing off now. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like the Osmonds, I suppose, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> okay, well that, that is an interesting approach. I mean, what is the core thing that one would want from their, their business partner? Trust. Absolutely trust. And knowing that they're going to do their part. And if you say to them, listen, you know, I really have to talk to you about changing something, that they're going to listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a little bit like the reverse of what we talked about earlier. You know, that these people uh, who successfully launch a startup and sell it are naturally driven and are very likely incapable of understanding when someone would complain uh, for all the, you know, the bad things that are going on at a company. Yep. And if you put Nate and Nikki together, they do become a Dave or a Tom. I mean, Nikki is absolutely driven. It doesn't take too long to uh, to talk to her to to hear just how smart she is and how directed she is. And she was a PhD candidate. You can hear it in her voice. I mean, Nate also has drive, uh, but it's a little bit more along the technical lines. And he's kind of like Tom in that he's able to see an idea and then execute it, carry it through. Mm -hmm. It it didn't seem strange to me at all that we would start a business together. I always knew that Nate wanted to start a business. I knew that since we were sixteen. Um, and there was always a goal to make that happen in some way. And I think our original plan was, hey, you know, I'll, I'll go to grad school for a couple of years. Um, I'll come out, I'll get a job so we have health care, you know, and you can go and just do what you want to do and start a business. And then it kind of happened that Nate had an idea. I was into it and I said, you know, let's just do it now. It wasn't really until, you know, she started saying she was interested that I, you know, I took a step back and I said, well, wait a minute, you know, that makes perfect sense. You know, that, you know, we both have the same kind of, you know, drive and um, work ethic and, 
you know, we're we're both forthright and good communicators and all that kind of thing. So, you know, starting the company together really started to make more sense than me being alone doing it, you know? Yeah, and I think we have complementary skill sets and we know what our deficiencies are and we're perfectly happy with them yep. being that way. We're honest about it. Yeah. I, I can't keep something running. I'm not good at uh, keeping things going and organized. I'm the most disorganized person in the world. So, but I can set something up and I, I, you know, I can see what it'll look like and I can create things from nothing. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer, that's what I do. Um, but in terms of, you know, handling support and, you know, accounting and, you know, actually making the business operate like a business, not just, you know, I can build a product, but I don't, I don't think I would have been able to take the product and turn it into a business without Nikki. Well, they, they always say when they're talking about Microsoft that you need to have both a Bill and a Steve. You have, need to have a technical right. head and a, a business head, right? So in this context, uh, Nikki is a little bit more like Dave. You know, yeah. she, she's the business person. She loves Nate and wants to make sure that uh, he'll fulfill his idea. Some people built to see things through. Tom, Nate, yourself. You get a vision. You put your head down. You say, get out of my way. Here comes the vision train. And then, you know, this is why guys like you have a lot of hard time delegating and divorcing yourself yeah, from the idea. Absolutely. I am a horrible manager. Um, you know, and mm. then there's people who are a bit more like Dave, making it rain, showing people what's possible and trying to change their lives. Um, I mean, truthfully, I think that kind of sounds a bit like you, too. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think I have the head for being a startup person, although... Maybe if I could drink all the diet soda I wanted and have tacos all day, I would I would do a startup like that. But I would still right. never let you sleep in my garage. But let's 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 bring this home. So in the beginning, we asked the question, you know, who are these people? I, I think I think we know better. I think we know yeah. who they are now. They're people who believe in themselves and they believe in their idea, uh, sometimes to a level that puzzles others and makes them uncomfortable. I mean, I believe in my ideas. Uh, but I'm not willing to sleep in in my garage or your garage or turn down a truckload of cash just because I want to work for me. I feel like I have an off switch. What I want to know, though, is how do you deal with these people when you work for them? And then uh, how yes. do you manage up when someone um, believes in something so strongly? That is the question. I think that's probably what's on a lot of people's minds. But unfortunately, we're a little bit out of time. But I think that sounds like a great topic for the next show. <laughs> Managing up. Time to cue the music, your favorite. It's my favorite part. No, get Lady Gaga, please. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this week's This Developer's Life, and to remind you, we couldn't do this without Twilio and Sublime SVN. They're helping us pay for things like bandwidth and production tools so we can continue creating awesomeness for you. Please check them out at twilio.com and sublimesvn.com, if only to say thanks for supporting this podcast. Step up in this motherfucker.
Just a swing in my hand. Shrink, quit talking, crip walk if you down with the set. Take a bullet with some grip and take your smoke on the jet. Out of town, put it down for the father of rap. And if you happen to get cracked, trick, shut your trap. Come back, get back, that's the part of success. If you believe in the S, you'll be relieving your stress. Triple O, coming real, it's the next episode. 